Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. We have to innovate the way we innovate. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I'm joined by Patty O'Reilly. And this is another show that draws upon the connections between Iowa and Cork. Patty is an innovation specialist, lecturer, and trainer focused on building innovation teams that pursue bolder targets by thinking bigger, starting smaller, but moving faster. Patty has guided and mentored individuals and teams innovating in EMC, Dell, Motorola, VMware, IBM, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Central Bank, and Bank of Ireland, among others. In 2011, he was awarded a PhD for his action-based research in the innovation models of organizations. He is co-founder and chair of the Digital Transformation Lab at Cork University Business School, which is a peer learning network for sharing digital transformation best practices. He is co-founder of the Action Design Research Seminar Series in Cork University Business School for professionals doing high-quality, practice-oriented research. Potty is a co-director of the Innovation Through Design Thinking postgraduate program at University College Cork. Potty and I dig into effectual innovation as a proven way of kickstarting innovation in organizations that leads to an organic shift in mindset, skill set, behavior, and ultimately culture. From his decades of experience with innovation practices at the ready, we talk about what works, what doesn't, and the organizational gap between the importance and desire executives place on innovation and the lack of sustainable innovation found in most organizations. We discuss the power of small teams, working with the resources that you have at hand, the importance of feedback and learning through our prototypes. And these prototypes don't need to be physical. They can be stories or diegetic prototypes. I love Potty's framing of reverent irreverence when we provide feedback, which reminds me of a sign my grandfather had hanging above his bar, quote, Irish diplomacy, the art of telling someone to go to hell and having them look forward to the trip, end quote. I also appreciated Potty's perspective related to technology, innovation, and teams, and why the human bit is really the hard part. We need to enable and empower our innovation teams if we're to realize the power and potential of innovation. We talk about design and the importance of humanity-centered as we're confronted with large-scale, truly wicked problems. We look at the fabric of an innovation ecosystem, the importance of diverse teams, the need to be intentional, and have a bias for action. Those are critical elements for the futures that we design and how we might create the potential for the people in that ecosystem so that they might be their best self. It was a pleasure having Potty join me on the podcast. I look forward to a time that I can join Potty for a pint in Cork and swap more stories about innovation. I hope you enjoy the episode. Slancha.
Potty, welcome to the Iowa Idea podcast. It is an absolute pleasure to have you here. I love when we get to talk, So, and, and this time we'll actually be recording it. Uh, but if you don't mind, for our guests, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thanks, Matt, and thanks for welcoming me onto the show as well. Um, I know I've been uh, uh, watching the various editions over the months, uh, and it's great to be part of it. Um, my own background, Matt, is uh, I'm based here out of Ireland um, in a part of Ireland called Cork. Um, uh, my family background is I have three young kids. You, you might even hear them in the background at some stage during this recording. So three girls uh, between the ages of 13 and 17. Um, also uh, a, a wife and many, many pets in the house here. Sometimes I wonder, are we living with the pets than the pets living with us? But uh, so it's it's really a nice area to, to live in. It's probably a bit slower than uh, the capital city. So Dublin being the capital city here in Ireland, London is, is quite close as well. Um, but at the same time, I suppose we've that second city sort of um, uh, syndrome where uh, no matter what anyone tells us, we think we're as good as everyone else and probably even better. Um, so I, I think that's probably my sort of family uh, background. In terms of sort of professional career, I just started life um, as a, an engineer, a software engineer back in the early 90s. I worked for my first uh, company was GEC, uh, based in the UK. Um, and from there, really, the, the next 30 odd, well, just nearly 30 years at this stage, Matt, I've been working really with innovation. That's been nearly the constant team throughout uh, my career. Uh, I've worked in various uh, different roles from a technologist, designer, analyst, um, right through to team lead, project manager, um, program uh, uh, lead, you know. So I think a fairly wide um, range of, of roles, um, which I think has given me maybe a fairly wide perspective on how innovation works, how it doesn't work actually in some cases. Uh, I'd have also um, uh, led up um, uh, an innovation consultancy for best part about 10 years in the early 2000s on, uh, I would have worked as an innovation director with a UK-based technology company. And some for mad reason in the uh, about 2007, I, I went and did a PhD in innovation management. So I suppose they're the big sort of um, uh, markers in, in, in my professional career. I suppose since then, uh, I've spent a lot of time uh, in uh, executive education, teaching um, how we can innovate, how we should innovate, maybe in some cases. Uh, I've also mentored a lot of different individuals leading uh, innovation initiatives in their companies. So we're very fortunate here in Ireland, Matt, we have a lot of the global technology companies in particular based here. Actually, I can look out the window here and I can uh, almost see uh, where EMC now does are based. I can see Apple computers. Uh, I can see where Motorola was based. Um, uh, I can see further up probably where VM uh, where is. So I'd have worked with uh, individuals in, in most of those organizations. Uh, also the likes of Facebook, Google, Amazon, um, IBM. Um, and then outside of the technology space, uh, I would uh, work with um, in, individuals um, leading innovation in the likes of the Irish Central Bank, different 
um, uh, national banks here in Ireland. I'd worked with health insurance companies, insurance companies. So really, I suppose I'm fairly agnostic when it comes to uh, sector uh, industry. Really, my real interest is, is how can we get innovation to work in organizations? And maybe a mantra I use a lot, Matt, is how can we innovate the way we innovate? Because essentially, it is broken. And I know we've been involved in discussions previously, you know, where we might be pulling our hair out, you know, at uh, I suppose the way uh, companies, lots of organizations are trying to innovate um, and really failing to innovate. So there's some really interesting stats to know that, um, what is it, 60% of organizations rate innovation as a top three priority. And there's nearly an equal percentage of companies say they really struggle when uh, they innovate. So that sort of intent execution gap is really where my interest is. Can we get individuals and teams into that gap where those individuals and teams are better together than they are separately? I think a big issue we have in organizations at the moment is we have individuals and we have the organization. Individuals don't feel connected to the organization. They don't share the purpose of the organization, uh, are incredibly disengaged. Is it 70, 80% of employees in large uh, technology companies feel disengaged? When it comes to any other resource, and I hate that word resource, would we really accept that we invest all this um, time, money, effort in a resource and leave it 70, 80% disengaged? I think it's one of the massive issues we have in organizations at, at, at the moment. Now, Matt, I could go on and on forever no, this here, is, so I'm going to give you a chance yeah, to get the thank word you. in. Yeah, this is, no, this is great. Uh, and um, obviously, we've, we've talked about this. I've shared this a little bit on the podcast, but... Uh, from a, a family history, I have some deep connections to to Cork, and uh, so I uh, I know one of um, one of my relatives came, from, and I hope I'm pronouncing is it Cove? Am I pronouncing that correctly? That's it, Cove. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. but spelled C O B H. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> like everything in Ireland, it's never as easy or as straightforward as it looks. So, yeah. And um, like, so yeah, deep history and some folks that settled in, uh, in what was the Iowa territory before it became uh, even, even a state. So it was, it's, it's uh, fun making these connections on multiple levels on the, on the personal front. I'll share with you too. I have uh, two children. Uh, one's in, uh, One's a sixth grader. Uh, one's a freshman in high school. Uh, so we're we're dealing with ages ages twelve and fifteen. And mm. uh, my daughter's name is Fiona. And a couple oh. of years ago, when we were uh, we had just landed in the Dublin airport, and she, uh, Fiona went to the bathroom, and Pam went to check on her. What you need to know is there's there's nobody in Fiona's peer group named Fiona. Right. And when Pam went to check on her in the bathroom, she just said, hey, Fiona, and heard three different voices respond. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, fantastic. And a lovely name. And it's really interesting, Matt, as well. And I hope you don't mind yeah. me telling stories here where I'm sitting here in Cork City, just over my left shoulder. Not that anyone listening yeah. to can see my left shoulder, but there's uh, the River Lee, which flows through Cork City here. Uh, and we're really looking forward to uh, yourself, your family visiting us here, Matt. But if I go straight up that, that river, I, I come to uh, eventually West Cork, West Cork leads into an area called Beira. Uh, Beira is the home of the of the O'Sullivans. And very interestingly, there's a family left that area 
a, a townland called Adrigol back in the 1840s. And that family moved to Iowa and five of those boys were the Sullivan boys that died in Pearl Harbor. Um, oh, yeah. So yeah. essentially, a hundred years later, after that family left here uh, in Adrigol, would have traveled past where I live here, going to Cove, right. which you just mentioned, yep. would have got a ship to the US. And a hundred years later, the descendants, those five Sullivan boys, died, perished uh, on a ship in, in Pearl Harbor, uh, uh, I suppose, um, as members of the, the US Army. So yeah. it just shows you how, how small a world we live in and how all connected we are. And I know, Matt, we're talking about systems a lot, you know, um, and how all these systems interconnect and how something small that happens here can have such a big repercussion elsewhere. Yeah, it, thank you. I one of the things I did want to ask you about because uh, note that you uh, and as you mentioned as well, so you your undergraduate degree was in mechanical engineering, and so started the world in software engineering, which uh, painting with dangerously painting with broad strokes, right? A lot mm -hmm. of ones and zeros, right, and a lot of clear answers that are supposed to be there. Uh, kind of curious on. You talked about your overall journey, but your interest in uh, innovation, uh, where, mm. what sparked that interest to go down that path and, and spend so much time and, and get your PhD in innovation? Yeah, I'll, I'll be very honest, uh, Matt. It was failure brought me to it. You know, um, I could I could paint all sorts of pictures um, uh, here, but I yeah I did. I started where I I like I, I'm a graduate of uh, of mechanical in, in engineering. Um, uh, I started work with GEC, a very successful company, later turned into Alstom, you know, one of the biggest um, uh, power generation companies globally. Um, so uh, their thinking at the time, it was easier maybe to uh, bring someone that had very strong principles of, of, of engineering and teach them how to, to design software rather than the other way around, getting a software engineer and trying to teach them in engineering principles. So uh, I suppose I had always been interested in, in, um, in programming, in, in um, uh, computers. I remember as a 13, 14-year-old uh, saving up for a long, long time to be able to afford uh, what was a ZX Spectrum, a Sinclair ZX Spectrum, which was competing maybe with Commodores and Amstrads at, at the time, uh, and literally learning how to program in, in those early days. So I was the one and zeros type guy. You know, it, it was all about... The, the the I suppose the artifact it was all about the the code it was all about the technology it was all uh, about uh, understanding the what we could do with with technology I suppose then for the uh, and I'm a slow learner Matt but starting life then involved in different types of of, of projects you know um, whether that was um, uh, projects uh, that involved the uh, redesign of, of turbine blades, which was a project I was involved in GC, where we were designing the software that would calculate the correct curvatures of beautiful steel blades, you know, in terms of maximizing uh, the, um, I suppose, the output from those turbines. Um, so that, that'd be an example of an early project I was involved, but uh, I suppose then subsequently I was involved in process re-engineering um, pr um, uh, projects. I was involved in service redesign projects. I was involved in, in uh, financial product um, uh, projects. But I suppose 
like lots of slow learners, it dawned on me eventually that the technology was the easy part, you know, and, and it's, uh, in most cases, we were able to do what we needed to do using the technology. Uh, but it still didn't guarantee that these projects were going to be successful. In fact, it had very little bearing on whether the projects were, were successful or not. So we'd have seen what I would say is very successfully uh, produced technical artifacts that still were part of failed innovation projects. And of course, what, what was missing was the, the human bit that it's, uh, I, I suppose what we have to do is enable humans to be something different, to do something different, um, to empower them. And if we're missing that part from the innovation um, uh, ecosystem, the innovation projects, then those projects are very likely to fail. And I suppose that brought me on a journey then, Matt, of, of looking for um, the, the missing pieces really. And, and it brought me uh, towards uh, design and uh, as a designer, as an engineer, I was taught design, but again, it was a certain type of design, more like industrial design. You know, it was all again about the ones and zeros, the technologies, but I, I suppose then I would have come across the whole idea of human-centered design and uh, uh, how we can incorporate the human and human sensitivities into what we uh, do. And that was really an eye-opening period for me. Now, it still wasn't straightforward as to how you should do that. And I suppose that's something that really has driven me since, that we know the human bit is very important, but how do we really incorporate the human uh, into everything we do? And I think there's a, a lovely saying now, you know, that it isn't just human-centered, it should be humanity-centered, you know, where we're not just looking at now designing for maybe a select group of people, but designing for the future of humanity. So we should be considering things like ecology, uh, environment, bigger, bigger questions to know. Um, so I, I love the question, uh, Matt. Um, it, it's probably one I haven't considered maybe as much as I, I should, you know, how I got to where I am now based on uh, where I've come from. Uh, but I, I think it's really uh, because of uh, being involved in these large, high-profile projects. So uh, I suppose back in the 90s, we were involved in, in projects that at the time would have been 20, 30 million, um, uh, the Irish currency at the time was, was, they weren't insignificant. They were a major part of, of um, the strategic effort of our organizations. And I, I would have to say, in some case, I'm not sure they would have achieved everything they should have achieved. In fact, I'd probably say they didn't achieve everything they should have achieved. And very often because we didn't seriously take the human element into account. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, um, a little bit of similarity there, too, because a lot of my early career was in uh, technology and like large scale technology deployments right? and, and mostly to serve. Uh, business needs related to efficiency, right? And some of it uh, was like, you know, like, uh, build, building uh, all states first uh, 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 kind of their, their first internet site, but it was all to just get the same information as they work, worked with customers. But uh, so my background was more in communication. And then I was, uh, thought I was going to be a filmmaker, uh, but then went in, got really interested in, in how uh, groups of individuals 
construct meaning and come to shared meaning. And, and then my uh, graduate or my master's work was on uh, the thesis was on computer augmented group decision-making. And so it was a joint project with the computer science department and to put it in context, that's 93, 94, right? So we have the internet backbone, the web is kind of starting to emerge, but yeah, a lot of, a lot of my projects really, uh, we might call them like UX projects or CX projects, uh, but we didn't have the really have the language then, and uh, that was seeing the, the the human side or the the soft skills were really the hard parts about mm. these 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 successful projects. And to your point, in the in the state, some of the projects I was working these were multi million dollar projects, and they were also coming down to not really understanding how the technology would be used in context, understanding the user on multiple fronts, like who's using the software, who's at the other end of it, who's the recipient. And there's no way I would have ever said, you know, kind of in the mid nineties that I was going to be working in the innovation space. Uh, but, you know, through that. And I think to your point, maybe similar is when I really um, dug deep into design thinking and you know, had more formal training and that's where a lot of seemingly random things became more connected for me. And I could see more patterns emerging from that. Yeah, and I love the idea as well, Matt, of you pulling, you know, the, um, the I suppose, to create the more imaginative parts of the you know, filmmaking, et cetera, together with the intellectual, the rational, you know, parts. And, 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 I, and then I think for me, that is what design thinking is, is really all about. It's, it's about being able to look at these problems uh, from the point of view of trying to understand what the problem is, not just trying to solve it, but also trying to see it through these different uh, lenses, um, uh, look at it from the point of view of, you know, what sort of creative uh, solutions can we come up with? It, it, can we look at those rationally then in terms of, well, what's viable, what isn't viable here, what will make uh, a, a difference? And, and I love that. And I like, I, I think in general as well, uh, we're seeing, uh, thankfully, uh, Matt, a move towards where uh, we're bringing you know, those creative types together with those rational types, uh, because I think there's a role for both, especially in, in innovation. Yeah, yeah and, and I think, too, for us, uh, also my early tech projects, I would throw those into the tame or even maybe complicated problem, but they weren't complex because uh, at the time we really weren't uh, internet enabled, right? And what that's done to complexity uh, as far as like an environment uh, has just been uh, really, really fascinating for me. And I loved your, um, you know, kind of for me, how, you know, how can we innovate the way we innovate? Because uh, that is uh, one of the big things I see as well. And in my innovation class, it's one of the early things we cover is, uh, as, as you indicated, Talk to most CEOs at large organizations, and they'll say innovation is 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 a top or one of their top priorities. Uh, talk to them about the effectiveness of their innovation programs, or when they're surveyed and assessed. I think this might have been an Accenture study from a year or two ago, but we had uh, I think they said eighty eight percent of uh, enterprise innovation is managed haphazardly. So like even flipping that, like only 12% is not haphazard. It doesn't even mean it's good. It's just not haphazard. And so the vast majority want it, but they can't do it. So uh, that's why there's 
maybe this will be a choose your own adventure. We'll we'll cover both, but see which one you want to go with first, because I'm I'm fascinated with some of the work you've been doing lately on effectual innovation. And I'm mm-hmm. also I, I love because uh, storytelling is a big part of prototyping for me. And I did I didn't have the label, but I know you've worked in diegetic prototyping as as a mm-hmm. really valuable and inexpensive tool, right? It's a really good scrappy tool for innovation. Uh, between those two, either that you want to start with, yeah. But see, see, uh, let let's do both. Um, uh, Matt, you know, see, yeah. see again. Uh, I suppose the Irish mentality we, we've a high degree of of um, comfort with uncertainty and things that don't seem to fit together, putting them together. So let's see if we can pull these two things together. I love so, it. So yeah, yes. look, I I think <laughs> something I'm really passionate about. Yes, let's let's try it. We, 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 it may not work very well, but it's your show, okay? So, um, but like I think um, a, a big mantra we I suppose I I would be giving out a bet uh, uh, is is that we can be better, faster, and bolder with innovation, and it doesn't need more resources, okay? And I'm really really adamant that it doesn't require more resources. So one of the big issues up to now is you go into large organizations and invariably you have maybe consultants going in saying you have to change everything to be able to do this and you need to change the whole fabric of your organization. I, I disagree and effectual innovation, which is something that I'd be advocating, uh, would also suggest that you don't have to change the whole fabric of your organization in order to be able to innovate. So essentially it's based on uh, uh, principles of effectual reasoning, uh, Matt, that go back a lot in you know, uh, uh, Sarasar's Vati would have looked at effectuation as part of uh, a PhD she did with Herbert Simon. You don't get much better than uh, a supervisor mentor in the form of Herbert Simon. But uh, Sarasar's Vati would have highlighted, I suppose, this idea of effectual reasoning. And, and at its core, uh, it's essentially saying, what's the best possible future we can create with the resources we currently have? Okay without having to take massive risks. So I, I think there's really important principles at play there. First, I suppose one is this idea that um, we can design our own future. It isn't something that's preordained out there in front of us. Okay, We can be co-creators of that future with our employees, with our customers. And I think even that mindset is so critical. And we spoke earlier, Matt, about the importance of mindset when it comes to innovation. I agree 110% with you. Is mindset is absolutely critical. So for me, that's one of the most important elements of mindset is that we accept that the future is something that we can co-design together. I think uh, maybe a second one then is that let's sit down together and try and figure out what that future could look like. Okay, so what sort of future can we create with our employees for our customers? And I think really important here is this concept of actualization that uh, as uh, organizations, yes, we used to think about, you know, we sell commodities, then it was products, then it was solutions, then it was experiences. But for me, the key uh, is really, uh, and I think there's been a shift towards this in the last maybe five, 10 years is towards actualization. It's how we make our customers feel, but more importantly, what we allow them to be. 
So innovation is about what we can do today that allow our customers to be something they they need to be. And that might be, uh, I don't know, a better cook, a better chef, a better whatever it is, you know, but we need to figure out uh, what that is. So I think that's a, a, a second element. Next element is, okay, we have a sense of, of what this future might look like. Let's now figure out what assets we have that can bring us towards that future. Um, and, uh, and I think, again, we need to make sure that there's what we call a strategic landing strip, to know that if we go on this journey, there's somewhere to land this plane in the organizational strategy. Otherwise, we're taking off on an innovation plane where there may be no place to land that plane going forward. And I think we've all been involved in projects where we think the, the project is, go, is going fantastic and then it's shelled because it just, there was no place to land it within the organizational strategy. So I think that idea of making sure there is that landing strip, you have the right stakeholders in, in, in involved is, is, is really important. Next one is, is I suppose, the fabric of, of, of the team. We don't need big teams. In fact, we would argue you should start with small teams. In fact, small teams are more are better performing than, than bigger teams. But what you need is a connected team, a team, um, uh, I suppose, that's connected into different domains. So maybe you need the diversity within the team or you need links back out into diverse uh, areas. Um, so I think that idea of, of the fabric and the fabric right is really important. And of course, that bigger e the ecosystem is, again, the more assets you have access to. So even though your core team is small, you have access to a larger pool of assets through your your ecosystem. Next one, and maybe this is where let's try and figure out where you know the the the, um, the prototyping and the digesis come comes in is this idea of of um, I suppose um, managing risk. So. Obviously, initiative approach manages risk because let's do a small bit, figure out if it works, then based on the lessons, come back around and modify uh, and uh, keep on, um, I suppose, adjusting as, as you go towards success or, or at some stage, possibly even, you know, um, uh, killing the idea because it's, it's just not the right idea. Now, really important to that, uh, Matt, is this idea of, of how do we, um, I suppose, get feedback because uh, agile is useless if you're not learning. Learning is is isn't possible if you're not getting feedback. So how do we get feedback? And I think um, I suppose coming from a technology point of view, of of view, we know we can create prototypes which are maybe physical instantiations. So maybe um, uh, I, I mentioned turbine blades of uh, earlier. You could create a small scale model of a turbine blade. Now that's fairly expensive and you probably need wind tunnels and all sorts to test it but there's a lot of ideas uh, especially in this digital age where you don't have to create i suppose a high fidelity to scale uh, model of of what is your 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 building uh, and one one approach that we use is we prototype through storytelling now, that's, people might say, that sounds very strange. How can you prototype true storytelling? But what we do is we create, we start to craft stories of a future, maybe the, the, uh, the organization in five years' time, or maybe uh, your community in 10 years' time. And what we do is we start to talk about what a person in that environment would be doing within that environment. What products would they be using? How would they be using them? 
how 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 would it, it make them feel when they look back how different is it uh, in that at that time i.e five ten years in the future compared to the past so essentially what we're doing is cr- starting to create the very early versions of future products and these are what we call digesis though they're diegetic um prototypes uh, now what we then do is start to maybe draw those so try and visualize them maybe through artwork, through storyboarding, what it is, you know, and then we start to show these to others, other stakeholders. Um, now, something really important is, is, is the audience. Who are you going to put into the audience? Who should be crafting these stories? Because we very often we, we collaborate in creating the story. So we'd have lots of stakeholders that are starting to, to tell stories of, 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 of this future, uh, but also who should you have listening? So we also have to remember that uh, in 10 years time, um, let's say the, the person that's eight years of age now is the 18 year old. The person that's, let's say the 20 year old now is the 30 year old. So again, I suppose we need to, depending on what we're trying to do is bring different stakeholder groups into the uh, equation. Uh, we had a very interesting project, um, Matt, we, uh, maybe about five years ago now, it was in the connected health space. Um, so we had roughly about two years to deliver um, uh, a connected health application into uh, mothers' homes. And what it was was for monitoring mainly blood pressure, but also urine, protein in urine. Uh, and what we were trying to do was detect the early onset of hypertension. Hypertension in particular, preeclampsia is one that's still the highest causes of, of death um, you know, to mothers and unborn uh, children, even in, in what we call the Western world. So what we did was um, before, so we had a very tight deadline, two years. And remember now, we were also having to do maybe um, a study, uh, a research study as part of that to ensure it was working the way it should, especially when there was a clinical element to it. So uh, Unfortunately, if you're a project manager, you can't ask women to deliver a baby in four and a half months or nine months. So we knew in order to get these studies done that we had to essentially have a fully fledged connected health application connecting from those apps in the home right through to an electronic health record, uh, essentially in about 12, 13 months so that we could run the studies to finish within the two years. Now, really interesting in the earlier parts of those design uh, efforts, it was nearly all storytelling was the form of prototyping where people were talking about uh, maybe uh, I'll pick one, uh, Jean, Jean that lives at home, her kids are upstairs in bed, telling the story of Jean sitting at the kitchen table in her kitchen, talking about how she feels, she's not feeling right, not sure why she isn't feeling right, then uh, starting talking about this device, this connected health device that she would have, to the extent that the people are even talking about it, it's at her left hand, she's now putting on the cuff, and someone says, well, she's right-handed. So what was happening now, people were even evaluating that design, even though it didn't exist in reality yet, it only existed in the story. So people were saying, but she's right-handed. How is she going to work with a, a cuff that has gone to her left arm, whatever? And all these conversations started happening in those early stages that really were instrumental in the, um, in the final design of that solution. And for me, that was probably one of the biggest um, 
and really interesting insights was the fact that technologists were as much a part of being able to engage with those story-based prototypes as anyone else was. That's great. I love it. There's a few threads I want to uh, pull on in there. And I love the idea of more of an an agile or scrappy approach to innovation. It doesn't have to be expensive. and, And some of what I understand in the way you've been talking about effectual innovation is like the, the birthday cake example, right? And, and it, the way I understand one, one is a lot of people might approach like, what would be the perfect best birthday cake ever? <laughs> and then uh, the sad reality is when they go into their kitchen and realize they can't make it themselves, so limited, limited tools, limited ingredients. Uh, but what if we flip that and we said, okay, based on the ingredients you have, what's the best thing you can do? And so, Part part of that, I think it aligns well with systematic inventive thinking. Do, have you played around yeah, with that? Yeah. yeah that's uh, in my innovation class. I set up the class more broad, like divergent thinking and, and a lot of, you know, like aspiration and choice, but then we bring it into a closed world view. So we, I kind of shift gears on them because uh, the lat- latter part we are doing systematic inventive thinking. Now it's mm. like based on what we have. What can we do? How can we be yeah. scrappy? Um, and honestly, that was one one of the reasons I named my company Spark. Mm-hmm. It was a, a small catalyst that can have an effect, right? Versus when I grew up early in my career, I, you know, part of this, I I worked for a boutique management consulting company, but we were in there, you know, mixing it up with the KPMGs, the Accentures, right? The, the big and. Um, to your, to your point about like selling transformation, I think part of it is when your your company for decades has has been <laughs> your business model is is getting in, setting up these base camps, and just spreading out to see how long you can be, rather than like what if you're in there to just do this thing, right? I'm mm-hmm. I'm here to help you innovate. What are and one of the things I argue is what's the smallest experiment we can conduct to test these hypotheses. It doesn't always mean it's small, but trying to have that mentality of like, what discrete things can we do so that we might learn? And a a big part of that is uh, having, um, you know, a little bit more of a closed worldview. And I'm I'm a big fan of like horizons and, and innovation kind of portfolios. But I think, you know, when we're talking about the, the struggle of these gaps, they're like people, as groups struggle, like they don't really know how to innovate. Um, Although we would, we can all think of things that we think are innovative, right. But that sustainable innovation becomes hard and there's so many elements in there. Um, But the, one of the things you're talking about as well, that I find uh, frustrating is the timescales that you were, you were mentioning like a two-year project, right. And, And the old school project manager, I used to use that example. We, 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 we can't tell two women to have one baby in four and a half months, right? There, mm-hmm. there are some things that just take time, but what's really interesting is I think a lot of our project management discipline is built from that hierarchy of tame problems that it's, there's a known timeline. It should take this long. And that's not to say that innovation can't have guardrails, can't have goals, but sometimes you start prototyping and you learn that you, you didn't even understand the problem to begin with. And so you would just be wasting resources if you continue to extend this. And 
then you get messy human ego in and right like so it's it is a big challenging problem but i i'm also curious because there's a few things too of talking to you and and also a, like an irish perspective but i have a feeling that culturally the us is on a different time scale than the irish mm. um and i think sometimes the way we think about time scales and futures where um just like I don't know. You you can go down the road and see. I'm assuming multiple homes that have been around for a hundred years or more in in your town. Mm-hmm. If I walk like a home in Iowa City is considered really old if it's more than a hundred years old, right? It's just like so. I think sometimes culturally, even our, our the way we think about time becomes a challenge on what our expectations or uh, patterns that we might see. Sorry, I'm rambling on the time scale, but that's one I've been trying to explore lately is time scale is an ex, uh, almost as an expectation and how different cultures perceive time different. And I'm not saying we, we don't have the same day. We don't have 24 hours, but some, sometimes, you know, people have seen patterns come and go more easily than mm-hmm. younger cultures. And I, I would throw the U S in general in a younger culture category. Yeah, I think this. Uh, I'm I'm writing here, um, Matt, and I think there's some fantastic points on it. So, like, if if we try and grapple with even that time element, which I, I think is is really interesting, um, and it ties back into that idea of the birthday cake you you spoke about. You know, um, I think again, if 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 our challenge is is to bake that birthday cake, uh, again, we can come up with the. Uh, a magnificent plan and as you say we go into the kitchen and the ingredients the utensils aren't there and next thing we now have inertia because we have to ask ourselves am I going to change the plan or am I going to go out and seek those uh, ingredients those utensils and we're now into inertia we're now into bureaucracy we're now into all of those horrible things the alternative is you say okay uh, I'm going to go into the kitchen. I'm going to figure out what assets, what ingredients, utensils we have. Now, what's the best possible outcome we can create in the short term without taking on undue risk to bake that cake? Now, what happens next, I think, is really, really interesting, Matt, because what happens is we start going, we start doing. And when we start doing, and particularly when we start doing together, we start building trust we start building momentum and then all of a sudden we realize we're after achieving this birthday cake why don't we do even the better one the next time and you you start to build uh, momentum and also really interesting is the idea of doing things together is one of the true ways of breaking down the, the issues of diversity the problems of diversity it's only when we start doing things together uh, that we really start to embrace the need for diversity because we're now dependent on one another. So I think that time thing is really interesting. I think getting going, getting going early, uh, in a way, uh, means that we start achieving early, but also means we're probably going to end up achieving a lot more in the longer term. And this is why I said earlier, for me, effectual innovation is about getting going now in the organization. You don't have to change the whole organization. Let's get going now. Uh, And in getting going now, we create a contagion because the people that were on that original team move out into other teams. They like what, what, what they experienced. They start bringing it to others. Uh, and we see this natural contagion of a new way uh, of of behaving, a new way of 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 thinking, a new a new way of doing, uh, which I think starts to to uh, spread out. I love the word spark. 
because I know myself and John Morley, you know, John, yep. we talk a lot about effectual innovation as bootstrapping. And it is a form, it's like the initial spark. Guys, someone needs to get this going. Who's going to do it? Let's do it now. Let's use effectual innovation to bootstrap how we uh, innovate. And I really like that. Now, that said, Matt, um, that's all well and good. But again, uh, I think you have to have, I suppose, either leeway from the leaders in the organization to do it. They're, they're going to let you alone or you have to have their buy-in. If they don't and they're not willing to close the gap between uh, authority and action by, uh, I suppose, allowing the authority to divest down into these teams, then you might as well give up. These teams have to have guide rails, so they have to have principles, and there's principles that come from the organization. But then uh, you trust that people will stay between those guide rails, and you, you, you trust them with the authority to make the right decisions. Uh, and I think that's really important. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with you on the, on the, both on the guard guardrails, enablement, and the, and one of the things that maybe over, over my career that has changed was when, you, when we talk about like an executive sponsor in a large organization, um, like I was naive early on. I thought of an executive sponsor uh, was an executive sponsor. The two dangerous assumptions I made that I would, if I had to do over again, would completely revisit. One is that they know what they're sponsoring, right? Uh, <laughs> just because they're sponsored. And I, and I don't mean that bad. Like it's in, it's like, even if they're on board, uh, the amount of coaching that you need to do for the help that you need, rather than just assuming they know how to be an executive sponsor, especially in innovation. And the other was, and this goes to like maybe the disengagement we've talked about, but uh, I was naive in thinking that like, cause I've had projects where the CEO or the CIO or the CTO is the executive sponsor. I just, I just a thought, I, I thought I had a free pass, right? This was going to happen, right? We'll get the, no, I mean, and if, if others aren't on board and that's where I think through my career, I've changed to, and I'm not using great great phrases or words, but um, it's more coalition of the willing is who I need to work with mm. rather than I was looking at broad stroke change management. Let's get everybody on board. This is why this is great rather than let's do something quickly. Let's build momentum and let's demonstrate value because I think there's also a lot of people that sit in the middle and if they see something successful, they're like, Hey, I want a taste of that. Or, um, no, those people are getting recognized for doing good work. I there might be something there rather than trying to change everybody at once. And so that's part of too where I've I've changed my mentality on being a lot more active on on actually managing upwards to your executive sponsor, but then also mm. not wanting to waste too much time. Still want to be polite, be an ambassador, but my focus now is on that smaller team to produce rather than uh the meta work of trying to get everybody on board. Yeah, no, very, very good. And also I'd probably add to that as well, Matt, uh, and it's complimentary, I think, to it is that uh, uh, I think when it comes to innovation, we need to be also careful of the innovation superheroes, as we call them sometimes, you know, that we have maybe members on the team, let's say we've the, the innovation hero that everyone always thinks is the innovation guy or girl. And every time, um, uh, I suppose something needs to happen with, we go through them. They're the, 
the people with all the great ideas. But of course, what it means is the rest of us stop having good ideas then because we abdicate, say, well, that's his or her role. Another one I, yeah. I think, you know, is the rapid responder issue, Matt, you know, the innovation rapid, rapid response. These are the people that anytime there's a hint of an innovation opportunity anywhere in the organization, they're in to solve that problem and they want to own and they want to own that space. Again, squeezing out maybe people locally uh, right. that have the right. knowledge to to solve it. So I think there's these you know, different types. Another one actually is you know um, the innovation commander. You know it's all about the process. Doesn't matter what ideas we come up with or or who we have on the team. It's just the process. You must follow the process. So I I think we need to um, be careful of those things. And I know uh, I've been struck by um, work uh, of um, uh, Liz. Um, uh, Wiseman talking about multipliers versus diminishers. And I think it's really relevant to this space. And I know we talk a lot about trying to build these teams that are multipliers, teams where the people are better on and within those innovation teams than they are outside of those teams. And yet, unfortunately, you go into a lot of organization, uh, it's the opposite way around. They say, I'm actually better doing it myself than doing it within this team. So I think that multiplier effect, again, ties in with that contagion effect that we spoke about. If we can get these teams to be multipliers, it means then that essentially we, we can uh, create a contagion where this, these new behaviours start to move out into other areas of the, of the organisation. But I love, I love your points, you know. Thanks. I uh, want to switch gears a little bit selfishly uh, from, uh, again, from a kind of uh, the Irish part of my family. I want to check a phrase with you, see if, if there's anything to this or if my grandmother was just making it up. Uh, but she would claim that. Uh, so part of this will lead into the the rebel notion of cork, because I want to I want to talk about that a little bit. But my grandmother used to periodically say that. Um, so we have a lot of members of my family that will get into a debate just for the fun of it, right? It's, that's just that it's almost sport. Uh, but my grandmother used to ask, uh, is, is this a private fight or can anybody get in? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Does that, is, is there any, is there any kind of cork culture there or was this something my grandmother was just making up? No, I, th I, I think it's fantastic. And I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm trying to control the laughter here. So, um, but um, yeah, look, I, I think you're right. And for those listeners that maybe aren't familiar, you know, um, the area here I'm in is, is Cork County. Cork County is also known as the Rebel County. Um, that comes really from, I suppose, a long history of, of rebellion uh, against maybe um, uh, English forces or whoever. Actually, I think we probably even rebelled against one another just, you know, during different stages elsewhere with different clans that were literally right. fighting among themselves. But I think there is um, definitely an, an element uh, and we maybe you can build it out a bit, Matt, to know that uh, uh, about challenging the status quo. And I think that is very strong in Cork. It isn't just Cork because I think there's also, um, if you look at the, um, I suppose, you know, I, I'm, uh, the, the different sort of Hofstede uh, dimensions of culture, you'll see probably Irish people in particular um, uh, have uh, an acceptance of um, 
of community more so than in the US. Actually, the, the individualism is a bit less in Ireland than the, the, than the US. But at the same time, we have very little tolerance of, of power distance. We, we're, we have very little tolerance of someone else telling us what to do, which is interesting because for many, many years, probably best part of a millennia, we were under occupation by many different things, but we definitely have an intolerance. Now, I, 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 it's very interesting with generations now, more recent generations, I think we used uh, myself and maybe others, I know John Morley uses as well, and we probably said it to you as well, Matt, you know, this, this reverent irreverence that we'll tell you we disagree with you, but we'll, we'll, we'll tell you with a smile on our face. We'll try and tell you in a nice way. And we'd see that a lot even working with uh, companies here in, in Ireland where you'd have maybe people from the state, senior executives traveling to uh, Irish subsidiaries or, or Irish outposts of large companies. They come in and sometimes they can be quite shocked that the people that are local here, even though they're more junior to them, are willing to call out that they disagree with certain things that are happening. You know, so this idea of challenging the status quo is very, very strong. But at the same time, the sense of community is stronger. So we tend, uh, not always, but very often do it because we're doing what's right for the community, for the group, for the stakeholders. Um, so I think that's uh, really interesting that you brought that up. So we, we are willing to argue things out. Uh, not always, it's not going to end up necessarily in, you know, argy-bargy, but actually there is, a, 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 I suppose, um, an appetite for saying what you think and being honest about what you, what you think. The, another cultural element that I want to explore is a, a little bit of a hypothesis I have with some really strong uh, designers and innovators that I've worked with uh, are fluent in multiple languages. and sometimes, mm -hmm. and. Um, I just think about the almost like a way in some ways is it engaging left brain and right brain but uh again painting with dangerous broad strokes from from this side of the ocean but you know the way i see the irish is yeah a long time under occupation from england uh also mostly dominated by the church from rome right but uh but just thinking about the english there was english language but there's also the irish language right mm -hmm. and and like just even like having different words for different things, I, I feel is it's almost like mental calisthenics that allow you to access different things. And from a language nerd perspective, I'm a huge fan of uh, idiomatic expressions from other languages. Like how do they frame or how do they, how, it's basically how do they frame that problem or how do they frame that solution is what I think is going on linguistically. But I'm kind of curious from your your perspective, because I know you've referred to sometimes like Irish middleware, um, mm. but mine has been seen just personal experience with with people that are multilingual, and I and I mean like they're uh, you know fluent in multiple languages and and uh, have different cultural touchstones, being really powerful at at being able to uh, be nimble, I guess, mentally during during design challenges. Yeah, so great question, um, Matt, and I suppose. There's many ways of, of answering, but I, I think um, you're right, you know, th there's now a, a more widespread acceptance that the language we use uh, influences how we see the world and has a very big influence on how we see the, the world. So, for example, there are certain languages that see nouns as feminine or masculine, you know, uh, yes. for example, in some languages, um, a ship is a she. Um, 
other languages it may be uh, a he a masculine and actually the way we describe and the way we nearly design it is impacted by whether we see it as you know something tall sleek beautiful whatever versus you know um, something that's more functional more masculine so I think that's a really interesting in insight that you, you brought to it I think Ireland is, is particularly in interesting for a number of reasons because we have um, I suppose we it definitely English is now the dominant language uh, in in Ireland and has been probably for a, a, a few centuries. Unfortunately, for many reasons. Fortunately, for other reasons, you know. Um, I suppose, uh, but at the same time, we do have. Um, a, a, a population that's increasing again in terms of the, the number of Irish speakers, Gaelic language, you know, um, and that's really interesting because Gaelic tends to be the, the language of sorrow, or, you know, it's the language of, of you know, it, it's a very creative, a very passionate language in, in, in lots of ways. English, on the other hand, is very structured and it, it has Germanic roots, you know, tends to be really structured. There's a right way and there's a wrong way of saying things. Now, when you put those two things together, it's really interesting. If you look at the Irish playwrights, they play with language. They don't necessarily follow the, the, the rules of language. So you think of Joyce and these, you know, they play with language. It's an instrument. It's like um, putty in their hands. You know, they can craft uh, things uh, that maybe break the rules of the language, but actually convey things incredibly uh, powerfully. And I think that tradition is still there, even within uh, Irish uh, uh, playwrights. And I think if you look at, at language then, in general, and particularly the Irish language for uh, many, many um, hundreds of years, we weren't allowed practice um, religion uh, or our own language in some cases. So what people started to do was create uh, symbols in, in language, you know. So very often the country called Ireland was represented maybe as a beautiful woman or as a cow, or, which was a very valuable piece of merchandise at the time. But they used to talk about the woman uh, or the cow or whatever else, but everyone knew what it was. It was, it was talking about the country and the sorrow people had for what was happening to their, their, their country. So we've this tradition um, of being able to deal very effectively through metaphor, talking through metaphor. And very often, that those metaphors are created by bringing two things that a lot of other cultures would think would be impossible to bring together or brought together. And I think is it um, James Joyce, if I'm, if I'm not uh, incorrect, saying you know, the power of being able to hold two thinks at the same time, two thoughts at the same time, and even more powerful when they're contradictory thoughts. And that's really interesting when it comes to innovation, because for me, uh, innovation and actually I think it goes back to something we said earlier why not do I think you asked me to do one or the other and I said let's do both you know? right. so it's that idea that we can hold things together that maybe don't seem to fit and that's really powerful because it allows us to see incredibly weak signals that others won't see because they're filtering them through language etc yeah. and I think that's really powerful you know and I think we have a lot um, uh, for those of us and maybe this is uh, more a call to action. I think we need to be really careful that we're losing indigenous tribes, indigenous languages, indigenous cultures throughout this world at the moment. And yet they can bring such variety, power to the way we see the world. In fact, I'm fairly convinced a lot of the problems we now have globally 
would not be problems and would never have risen if we had seen the world through the eyes of some of these indigenous tribes, cultures, uh, languages. And just one final thing to give credit to the man. Uh, I didn't come up with the the, you know, the concept of the, the cultural middleware. It, it was another Irishman, Frank Hannigan, in an incredibly uh, powerful piece he'd have written ab about um, that cultural middleware, that the Irish can be, be the cultural middleware. So we've a reputation of maybe uh, being on U UN peace trips or going on peace trips to different countries because we had look we've had more experience of wars and and um, civil wars than anyone else but I think this idea of being able to see two sides to everything and maybe trying to bring people together um, onto common ground while respecting those differences I think is a very powerful um, uh, piece of middleware for any of that. And I've no doubt you have it as well, Matt, sort of from some of our previous conversations, you know. Um, well, so I, I, that's a very long-winded yeah. maybe answer no, to that's, your, your question. No, that's great. And I really appreciate that. Uh, and just a small note to just, uh, you know, like when we were getting a couple of years ago when we did travel, like I referenced, you know, uh, landing in Dublin, but um, I, was, I was doing my Duolingo. I was actually trying to learn uh, Irish language a little bit. And, uh, and we were also spending time in, uh, in Paris on that trip. And I have enough French just visually that I could, but one of the things that struck the, the, at least the way it was presented in Duolingo was it was really hard for me to think about, to your point, Germanic English structure. It's like, here's a relationship between a noun, a verb, here's a relationship between a noun and a, and an adjective right where does the adjective flow where does the adverb mm -hmm. flow and I, I i found that was uh it, it was difficult for me uh because some of those structures where i'm just used to english versus maybe a romance language where sometimes you flip the noun and uh, uh yeah. you know adjective and so, i have a i have a friend who lived in france and she said she thinks also people think about what's prioritized like if in english i would talk about the red book Right. But in romance languages, it would be noun and then the descript, right? It, it, it's a book, right? Like also what you prioritize, like the important thing is the book. It's not its color, right? Like in a way, like just small shifts. But um, I, I found the Irish language to be quite challenging where I was hoping that maybe my genetically there would be something that would just explode. So I, I'll give you a piece of advice on it, uh, Matt. Um, uh, I think you're right, actually, because um uh, the Irish language actually uh, goes right back, its source goes back to, um, I suppose, sort of the Indo-Hungarian sort of region there in, in Europe. It's, it's one of the oldest languages in Europe. And it's a real shame that uh, it has lost some of its siblings, though um, some of the, the languages from the same source have died since. Um, uh, so really interesting when we talk uh, again in Irish, uh, we can say, uh, let's say, which is walking slowly. Um, or on on lower dove the the black book. So again, the nouns and the adverbs go after the verb and the and 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 the noun, which is 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 very interesting. But you know what I'm now going to say. That's the mechanics of it. But really, to learn Irish as a language, is what you need to do is probably meet a group of people, a plenty of beer, wine, and just let go. Because if you think of it as a structure, you're probably going to overthink it, whereas it's a flow. The sound 
is nearly as important as the individual words. The, the, the intonation is, is very imp is, is important. So that's my advice. Next time you come over, we'll meet you. We'll make sure we put you sitting on a bar stool uh, at a bar. And I guarantee you after a few drinks, you'll be talking Irish as, uh, I suppose, as we say, leaflock, as as uh, as fluent as any of the rest of us. Right on. I'm, I, I love it. I hope that we can uh, uh, get a proper pint sometime soon. Uh, one of the things I like to cover with all my guests is a, kind of a notion of advice. Um, and uh, just in your career, either good advice you've received from a mentor and different shapes that this seems to take for me is sometimes, um, you know, when we we're young and we think we know everything, uh, an elder will say something to us and it sounds absurd. And then as you get older, you realize that it was a very elegant, uh, high density information payload. Like it, it just continues to help. Or other times we might look at where we wanted advice that we didn't have. That one I steal from Austin Cleon's book, steal like an artist where he just says, when we're giving advice, we're just talking to our younger self and taking a cue from you to make sure, you know, I'm listening. it's not an either or <laughs> both. Mm -hmm. And, uh, mm -hmm. but, uh, any advice that you have for, for the listeners of the podcast? Yeah. Um, it's a great question. And obviously you asked me beforehand, did I, I want to have sight of some of the questions? And of course I should have looked at them. Now I realize that, um, yeah, look, I'm not sure. I, I, I've, I've definitely changed a lot myself, um, uh, Matt, and maybe that's obvious in the way I've answered some questions. I, like I was, you know, um, maybe earlier in career, there was a process, there's a way of doing things and you, you, you follow that. And that's very much the engineering mindset you trust in, in, in the process. Probably now, especially when I'm engaging with, um, uh, let's say, people in lots of different uh, companies, also people in executive education, or uh, we're running uh, uh, an innovation through design thinking program now in U UCC, is I, I think it's about trying to really uh, find our best self and allowing ourselves to be who who, who we want to be. Uh, and to, uh, so it's it's not for anyone else to tell us that we can't be. It's for us to design who we want to be and uh, and i and i i really think those skills um those skills of yes reflection is important but also uh, you know abduction about who i can become is very very important and that's uh, a set of, of skills i think um that our forefathers just they were so constrained by uh maybe um lack of of resources you know that they just couldn't really blossom we definitely have far more opportunities now and we need to step out of the shadow we need to step out sometimes it's our own shadow to become those things i think there's a, a cognitive development that we we need to uh, allow ourselves to start offering our own uh, futures uh, and i think What's happening is those people are then the people we need to start driving organizations. I think organizations are actually constraining us. They're, they're actually telling us we can be what is defined in a role. You know? and, I, and I think we have to break out that if there's better individuals, there'll be better organizations. But someone has to blink first and say, yeah, we're willing to do something different in this organization. Or I, as an individual, am willing to do things that are different. And I really hope, and I, I, I do have hope because I see maybe the generation coming up or the generations coming up, Matt is embracing that more. And I really hope that the rest of us will allow them 
to be this new person, these new organizations, this new future. Thank you. I, I love it. Uh, and as you were talking about organizations, uh, one of the things I wrote down, I forgot to ask. So if you don't mind, just is uh, when you're when you're doing executive education on innovation, uh, is there is there like what is is I'm already constrained in the way I'm asking the question, right? Because the power of the answer is sometimes in the power of the question. But looking at the, is there a commonality where these these are where executives get stuck with innovation or where where they're they're struggling? Uh, since you're working with them, um, you know, because in in my mind it could be some of the barriers you even just mentioned, organizational boxes when you've been trained your whole career to. Either, whether it's command and control or to look at a series of boxes to manage things internally and not have good feelers outside uh, notions of complexity, but, and, and maybe it's related to the gap you mentioned too, that, that the kind of the, the aspiration and are quite different, but is there, is there an area where you, you see executives getting stuck uh, yeah. when you're working on that or, or maybe the hardest thing for them to wrap their mind around? Yeah, it's it's um, breaking mindsets, Matt. It goes back to where we started way, yeah, way yeah. earlier, you know, t today. Um, and it, it is difficult. Like, you're an executive in, 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 a, in a company. You can do the things now that deliver value now and will probably serve your career very well in, in the short term. On the other hand, who is looking at the longer term picture? Who, who's saying we're going to do the things today that would deliver the longer term value for this organization, for these employees? And to be honest, we're not seeing that leadership in a lot of organizations. I think uh, the States, Europe, we're seeing the, the average tenure of senior executives is coming down. So why would anyone come into an organization and say, I'm going to bet on the things that would deliver value for my successors? Okay, you know, uh, most of them won't do that, you know, and you, you spoke about the concept of time earlier, and I think it's really interesting if, if you look, you know, at the, um, the Hofstede, you know, again, dimensions of, of culture, you look at China, they have a completely different perspective when it comes to long term vision and, and time than we do in Europe than uh, we do in, 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 in the States. And, and I think that's a big issue, this short-termism, this constant, you know, it's like the marshmallow challenge for kids, you know. Uh, most kids will take the marshmallow and not think of the consequences, etc. But we're no different in, uh, as adults. We're no different as employees. We're no different as leaders. We're always taking the marshmallow, even though there'd be more value if we didn't take, there'd be more long-term value. Right. I think it's a, it's a big issue. It's mindset, Matt. You know? And yeah. very often when we're delivering you know, exec ed, it's about trying to show, first of all, execs what mindset they have and how they're thinking and creating that awareness, then maybe showing them there's alternatives, there's alternative ways. Uh, there's alternative mindsets, there's alternative skills, there's alternative behaviors, there's alternative cultures. Now, will they grab? grab it and grapple with it. Some do, many don't. Right. Thanks. Yeah. And the, on the, the timescale issue, one of the things that I've thought about is, I don't know, are you a fan of Monty Python and the Holy Grail? I, I, no, I've seen it. I wouldn't be, I, I, I'm not one of these people that can quote from it or, or <laughs> reference it. There, there's a scene where a castle is going to get stormed. 
right and the just the the cut of this scene i just love it's there so there's these these knights are charging the castle but it just they're forever and a day away it looks like and and they just keep cutting back to the castle and cutting the, and then and then the next split second everybody's on top of them right and i i feel like sometimes that's that's the the way we think about the future it's way out there and then all of a sudden it's being done to us. And so just your notion too, that we can actually be, be intentional. We can co-create too those, those things. And uh, I think part of that is that declaration of what is the future that we really want and how do we get there? Mm. But uh, so I've just so much appreciated the time today. Uh, thank you. Uh, it's, it's always a pleasure to talk innovation with you and uh, I really, really thank you for joining me on the podcast today. It's been a pleasure, Matt, and um, hopefully it's just one of many conversations you know, going forward. I know I've really enjoyed ones in the past. I've really enjoyed this. It's been lots of fun, um, and it is a conversation. Uh, there was this. This wasn't scripted or, or anything. Right. So, and I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to even more conversations in the future, including that trip you're going to make to back home to to Cork. Absolutely. Thank you, Paddy. Thanks. It's